0: Hey, Jay. So, I know Jubilee's parents are dead, but does she have no other living relatives?
1: Well, Miles, she has, or at least she had an aunt named Hope.
0: You'd think Hope would have shown up when Jubilee was orphaned?
1: Well, she didn't know. She'd been estranged from Jubilee's father for years. Anyway, when Hope finally found out, she did bring Jubilee to live with her for a while. Okay. Didn't work out? Mm, Not really. Hope turned out to be... A big jerk. ...a cyborg assassin. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin,
0: And I'm Miles Stokes.
1: And we are here to explain the X-Men.
0: Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to episode 341 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: And welcome back to Chris Pacello Drawing Generation X! Yes! Right? I mean, not right away. We have three issues we're covering, and he only does one of them. But still, he's back for, like, a while after this. We'll get there. We totally will. But in the meantime, uh, we haven't talked about Generation X in a little bit, so let's talk about Generation Gist. That's not what they're called at all. The gist of Generation X.
1: So Generation X is the successor to the New Mutants. They're young mutants learning to control their powers at the Xavier School. However, the Xavier School is now located in Boston, and instead of being run by Professor X or Magneto, its co-headmasters are former X-Man Banshee and former... Supervillain White Queen of the Hellfire Club Emma Frost.
0: Gotta say their teacher to student ratio pretty good. The seven kids, well nine, somewhere around there include
1: Jubilation Lee. It's Jubilee, and she's a former X Men with firework powers. They are technically, I think, plasma blasts, but their nature and power somewhat varies over the years.
0: We have Paige Guthrie Husk, Cannonball's kid sister, who can rip off her skin to reveal different substances underneath. I mean, technically most people can do that, but she can reveal a wider range of substances. And it tends to work out better. There's Monet Sainte-Croix, M, who is super strong and smart and tough and can fly and is psychic, but is also kind of weird and clearly has a mysterious past of some sort.
1: She's technically currently her two younger siblings, but that hasn't been revealed in the comics yet. Still, we know, and so do you.
0: There's Everett Thomas, Sink. Sink who can synchronize with other mutants' powers using a rad rainbow energy field... thing.
1: It's Jonathan Starsmore Chamber, who's slightly telepathic and can shoot psionic energy from where his chest and neck and lower jaw used to be. Used to be because of said explosions of psionic energy.
0: Puberty sucks for a lot of people. Real bad for him. There's also Angelo Espinoza, Skin, who has a bunch of extra-prehensile... skin...
1: Tenants, who's not really in this arc, has extremely, extremely sharp skin. The surface of her body can cut pretty much anything.
0: Also, not appearing in this arc are adorable pink and green moppets, Artie and Leech. They're hanging out in a treehouse.
1: They're doing great. Recently, though, M's monstrous brother, Mplate, did a bunch of extremely villainous things to the team, the worst of which involved turning Sink into one of his semi possessed minions. Which are themselves, somewhat confusingly, also called mplates. It occurs to me, actually, that uh, OG mplate is kind of the mplate template, which is appropriate considering that Google Docs repeatedly tried to change mplate to template when I typed it.
0: Google Docs, you don't know nothing about no mplates. What I know about m-plates is that they're kind of like vampires, but with creepy mouths in the palms of their hands instead of fangs in their normal mouths, and a thirst for mutant bone marrow instead of blood.
1: Now, officially what they eat are, quote, mutant genes, unquote, or genetic marrow. What this actually means will never, ever be explored. It's
0: fine, is the important part. Anyway, since the original template Mplate has a thing against families, him being somewhat estranged from his own, he sent his new henchman, Sink, to St. Louis to go track down Sink's family.
1: And that brings us to Generation X, number 15, Death in the Family, plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by Todd DeZago, penciled by Tom Grummet, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Christy Scheel, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft.
0: Hey, it's Todd Dezago. He actually did a bunch of scripting work for X-Factor a while ago. He scripted for J.M. DeMattis and John Francis Moore's Plots.
1: I really like him on Generation X. Yeah, yeah, no, his
0: dialogue fits the tone of the book really well, I think. And I think that's especially important with Chris Bocello still in his absence at this point, because before, so much of the book's personality came from Bocello's art. And so once you don't have that, that dialogue becomes critical to keep Generation X feeling like Generation X.
1: What I'm less thrilled with from Dezago is the opening narration, which is somewhat creepily ableist in its description of a blind baby. And this specifically is Sink's foster sister, whom he has gone home to visit and is, is, is saying hello to when his parents hear him over the baby monitor come into the room and he dives out a window to avoid them.
0: He's all creepy looking like he's got this evil expression on his face and his rainbow sink aura is, I don't know, more menacing, I guess. But what I really want to talk about here is that on top of his red and yellow Generation X uniform, he's wearing what appears to be a blue hooded wizard robe. Where did he get that? Does Mplate just give that to all of his new Mplate minions as like a welcome to the company present? It's part of the power set. Oh, okay, so you spontaneously grow a creepy mouth in the palm of each hand, and you spontaneously grow a wizard robe. Yeah. That makes as much sense as anything
1: else. He's also got Emplate's terrible font, unfortunately. Yeah,
0: yeah, which, uh, I don't think we ever really figured out what we thought that sounded like, did we?
1: I think it sounds like Hot Topic in the 90s.
0: Just the very sound of the feel of that store? Yeah, that seems about right. Let's also talk a little about Everett's family, about the Thomas family. They're rad. I really like them. They're really cool, yeah. They just seem to be really good parents, like to Everett, and they've got a couple of foster kids, um, at least some of whom are disabled, and they just seem genuinely pleasant without being so paragon of virtue-esque that they're not believable. Like, they get really upset with Banshee for not keeping their son safe, which is totally reasonable.
1: Yeah, their reaction to possessed Everett showing up out of nowhere in their baby foster daughter's bedroom is so eminently appropriate, and it's one of very few times that you really see a family reacting appropriately to the situation that their kid is thrust in as a result of being associated with the Xavier school.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I feel like most parents in superhero comics and X-Men in these situations would either be Everett. It's so good to see you. I'm going to ignore the fact that you're clearly a vampire of some sort or you filthy mutant scum. How dare you show your face here? But they're like, oh, Everett, it's good to. Whoa, there, buddy. Something is up. What's going on? God damn it, Banshee.
1: No, they didn't start with. It's good to. They started with, you know, what? Why are you here? Totally. Yeah. Are, Are you okay? What is going on? Because he's supposed to be in boarding school. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, as much as a nice surprise visit home is fun and all, it's unusual.
1: Well, it's unusual, and it indicates that something is terribly wrong, which it clearly is.
0: Uh, See figure one, the mouths in the palm of each of his hands.
1: I mean, that's just a rich kid thing.
0: Ah, rich people aren't like us, it's true.
1: I don't know, maybe that just goes with the whole boarding school deal.
0: Never been to boarding school, couldn't say.
1: Anyway... His parents call the cops, but they fudge the details. They, they say they interrupted an unknown intruder in the baby's room. And the cops are awful. They are super racist, like not even anti-mutants, just run-of-the-mill white supremacist fuck marmots. Um, they, they imply, after, after Everett's parents say that he's away, they imply that he's probably in prison. They're threatening to take away the foster kids. Fortunately, Emma and Sean show up and telepathically have the police all fuck off.
0: Yeah, Emma points out that the cops are lucky to not get mind wiped, and uh, yes, yes they are. But this is interesting, because initially, I think maybe just because I've read so many X-Men comics, I assumed that when the cops were talking about, oh, maybe maybe Everett's uh, away in some institution upstate, they had realized he was a mutant and were thinking of the Xavier School, but no, they're not in New York.
1: They were saying an institution with cinderblock walls, like they were, they were clearly talking about prison.
0: Yeah, and honestly, it's nice to see a little bit of um, intersectional bigotry in X-Men rather than everything being purely metaphorical. I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't like bigotry, but it exists in the world, and so if you're going to portray it in a story, sometimes you should do so directly.
1: Yeah, it's nice seeing a writer remember that anti-mutant bias doesn't replace every single other vector of bias and bigotry and discrimination in characters' experiences and that there are characters like Everett who are going to be dealing with multiple directions of of, of that at the same time.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Banshee and Emma are trying to figure out what to do here because one of their students has turned into a pseudo-vampire and that student's parents are understandably a little pissed about it. But it's interesting to see the way they talk about Everett. It's sort of a meta-conversation almost.
1: Yeah, they mention, th- or Banshee mentions, that Everett is so quiet and easygoing and and kind of so together that it's very easy for them to overlook him because he's not the one who's continually having crises or having his powers go haywire or inserting himself in the middle of conversations.
0: Yeah, I mean, my interpretation of that has always been that Everett's powers are to synchronize with other people. And so his personality kind of also follows suit. Like, he seems to always be at home in any kind of a social situation. He's just always pleasant and engaging and comfortable. I don't know if that's the intent, but that makes it work. But at the same time, yeah, who is Everett Thomas? We don't really know.
1: I really like that read. I think it's also relevant that he is a teenage black boy from St. Louis, who has probably been pretty heavily socialized defensively to not stick out and not seem threatening.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely valid as well, especially in the like textual face of the bigotry his family's dealing with right here.
1: Yeah. Like I I think I think in that regard, whether or not it's intentional, it's it's the responsible read is 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 to understand that race probably plays a role in that. Absolutely. So meanwhile, Jubilee, Monet, and Husk are going after Everett. Emma and Banshee decided that Skin and Chamber should stay at home so that they'd be bringing a physically inconspicuous group. Paige takes issue with this, as do I. And I also wonder whether they have access to image inducers, because that's been such a standard thing with the X-Men, that the idea of students having to stay at home because they can't pass as human seems... I mean, in addition to seeming seeming kind of shitty for other reasons, doesn't really mesh with the practical reality we've seen.
0: I think this is one of those things where you have to just accept that superhero comics are not going to be consistent. You're going to have amazing technology when it's convenient for the story, and the second it's not, that technology just goes the hell away. So, exploring in early Claremont X-Men, how Nightcrawler felt about being able to look like a normal, if exceptionally well mustachioed dude that's a character bit that works keeping these kids at home and making them feel left out that's also a character bit that works even if it doesn't make any goddamn sense i kind of think about it the same way i think about jetpacks we know that jetpacks exist in the marvel universe in fact they're very common so why would anybody walk anywhere if there are jetpacks all over the place i think the answer is because that's how the stories work
1: Oh, there are actually a ton of practical reasons there.
0: Uh, just in terms of not wanting to, I don't know, rocket into a giant monster's mouth as it attacks New York?
1: Logistics availability, fuel availability and prices, regulation.
0: Okay, fine, you totally messed up my example. But the point is, uh, technology serves the story more than the story is beholden to technology.
1: Fair point. Now... Everett, for his part, heads to his old school, the one place where he, he felt sort of safe before. He's found there by a friendly janitor named Giovanni, and Giovanni has a name. And he's a really sweet guy, and I was really expecting him to die horribly, and he doesn't, which is my favorite thing about this arc. He not only survives, but he survives basically intact.
0: He does have a very good mustache. That's probably got some protection to it.
1: Oh, he does. it, it is a, It is definitely a superior mustache.
0: Yeah, the impression we get here is that, like you said, Everett felt very at home at school, and he was extremely active at school. He excelled, he participated in all sorts of extracurriculars and service projects, and so, yeah, it makes sense that he would be tight with the staff there, especially the ones with amazing mustaches.
1: Now, Everett is really struggling— to shake off Emplate's influence. There's a lot of his own personality coming through. Really, in fact, he's, he's I would say, mostly himself at this point. He's going to places that are familiar to him. He's speaking as himself. Occasionally, he's, he's sort of overcome by Emplate.
0: The narration describes him as fighting against madness that marks withdrawal from possession, which I guess implies that he is not fully possessed if he's suffering withdrawal from it. But this is interesting to me. Like, we just covered the XSC miniseries, and in that, once Shard Bishop, an extremely strong-willed character, is turned into an M-plate, that's it. She's basically gone. She only has a moment of resistance, and Everett is mostly resisting. It almost seems like the M-plate infection is more of a, a temptation than something actually controlling him.
1: Yeah, um, I think it's fair to assume that that infection is going to it, itself evolve over time, or that m capacity to spread it Going to evolve over time. I mean, we don't know at this point if it can be spread. For for instance, independent of of template. Template.
0: I assume it must because in Bishop and Shard's future, Earth eleven ninety one, there are a shit ton of M-plates, and they kind of infect other humans.
1: As right. M-plates. We know it can in that future, but we don't know if it can in the present.
0: Oh, okay, maybe M-plate is uh, a an inexperienced template.
1: Or maybe the, infect- the infectious aspect of it is going to mutate, or maybe it's something that he can refine over time.
0: Hmm. Infectious aspects of things mutating. That seems... timely. A little
1: bit, yeah. Now, fortunately for Giovanni, the excellent janitor, Monet, Jubilee, and Husk show up just in time to, to keep Everett from emplating from at him. Unfortunately... Everett then syncs with all of their powers, which brings us to Generation X number 16, out of sync, plotted by Scott Labdelligan, scripted by Todd Dezago, penciled by Tom Grummet, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Team Buccalado, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft.
0: So the title is out of sync, like you just said, and that's S-Y-N-C. Sync the character's code name is S-Y-N-C-H. God damn it, pick one!
1: This is like Richter all over again.
0: Oh, the fact that his last name and his codename are the same word but spelled differently?
1: Well, and his last name is the one that's spelled like the Richter scale?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say he's an X-Force character and we can blame the guy that named Forearm, but no, no, Richter was around very early on in X-Factor. That's on Louise Simonson, much as I love her.
1: Jubilee manages to briefly get through to Everett, who sets off a big explosion and flees through, speaking of X-Factor, a giant hole in the wall.
0: Surprisingly, Jubilee is also the member of the team with a
1: plan. I'm not going. And I think you two should split up. Husk taking the lead. See, the farther away I get from sync, the faster he loses the opportunity to glom onto my power. His aura can't really duplicate Paige's power. She can wear him down, and then maybe M can like take him out?
0: This is Jubilee the resident youthful hothead
1: of all of the mutant teams, and she's being the strategist. I really like seeing her coming into her own tactically and as a leader here. She's been around long enough that this is stuff she really would have picked up, and it's an arc that makes a lot of sense for her.
0: Exactly, yeah. And she's probably the one who's the most emotionally invested in what's going on. She and Sync are tight, even if we've heard that described more than we've actually seen it in the comic. And so to see her being all cool and collected and hanging back from the rescue? Well done, Jubilee.
1: So Husk and Sink fight for a while. And then Monet tags in.
0: Let's talk about this whole fight thing, because Sink, as we've mentioned, his powers that he can synchronize and thus kind of replicate the powers of the mutants around him... My brain went straight to Mimic from the Silver Age of the X-Men, the guy who absorbed all the X-Men's powers at once and fought them off. I don't know, what's your take on that type of fight versus this type of fight? Do they seem analogous, or...?
1: I mean, this one is trying harder to lend some kind of logic and structure to powers that don't have a lot of logic and structure. For example, Mimic just directly duplicates powers. When he's around Angel, he sprouts wings. And Sync has a harder time duplicating more physically-oriented abilities like husks.
0: And that's inconsistent. I mean, we have certainly seen him turn, for instance, toughness of a mutant into sort of a force field kind of thing. But yeah, you're right. It's always at least altered. It's not just purely directly replicated. And that's kind of fun. It gives the writer a lot of flexibility for how to use those powers, and it can also just make for some cool visuals. I may be biased because his sync field is rainbow, and I love pretty colors.
1: Yeah, um, I I like the fact that Sink's own powers are explicitly energy-based, and and the way that he he translates other powers to sort of energy forms of them, I think that's a really cool conceit.
0: Totally is, yeah.
1: So, once Husk is is out of the fight, Monet goads Sink into fully syncing with her, and she does that for a strategic reason— that is because Emplate's powers don't work on her. He was never able to cannibalize her, and apparently syncing with her is enough to push him completely out of Everett's system.
0: And the narration at least implies that part of what psychs sync out, what de-Emplate's sync, is the revelation of Monet's big secret that we the readers still do not get to know. I mean, we've already spoiled it for ourselves and and the listeners. But uh, this is the slowest of goddamn burns. Like, Lobdell clearly intended M's background to be what it is, with her not really being herself, at least from very early on in Generation X, if not from even before the book happened. And we're freaking 16 issues in, and we still don't know what's going on, other than there being childlike aspects to her her and her spacing out sometimes.
1: Anyway, with Everett back in, in control of Everett, everyone meets back up with Banshee and Emma, who were keeping a distance to avoid Sink from absorbing their powers as well.
0: It's actually really great. Banshee's like, no, no, we have to save them! And Emma can't slow him down in time for uh, them to not get too close, and so she just telepathically shuts him down, and they just crash into a rooftop.
1: So the, the epilogue to this arc, the conclusion to this arc, actually comes in the next issue, but I think we're going to bundle it with this one just because this this. These three issues divide into two fairly neat stories and to me it makes more sense to look at them that way. So Everett's parents are understandably furious with with Banshee uh, for for their kid being put into danger and to Banshee's credit he's pretty realistic both with them and with himself.
0: "'Tis a dangerous world out there. We are not necessarily going to win each time. If you think I promised you that, I'm sorry." You saw what M Plate did to the boy. Do you honestly believe you would have been any help at all to him if the blaggard had come knocking here for him first?
1: Meanwhile, in the limo on the way home, Emma confronts M. Finally, um, breaking through Em's indifferent facade.
0: There's this great image of Emma grabbing M's sort of distracted hand, knocking the dum-dum, like the lollipop, out of it. It's, uh... Emma's been so good at just seeming like she never gives a shit, and, uh, Emma's got a good question about that.
1: You've been playing us for fools since day one. Tell me, Monet, was that out of chutzpah or fear? And this confrontation
0: makes sense, because remember, Emma lost her students, she lost the Hellions, and... She's not necessarily the warmest and fuzziest of people, but she is desperate to not lose any more students, which will not go great, admittedly, over time, but, you know, for now. So it makes sense. Like, all of that politeness about not telepathically reaching into somebody's brain without asking permission, she doesn't care about that. If there's all this creepy, mysterious stuff going on with M, she needs to know.
1: She is incredibly utilitarian about her powers. And she and M scuffle both psychically and physically, and ultimately M says that she'll do her best to tell Emma what she can. And we unfortunately don't get to find out what that is in that arc.
0: I almost wish this book had just kept doing that for its entire run, like the readers just never ever found out what was up with M, even as all the characters learned one by one.
1: That would have been hilarious. So before we
0: move on, let's talk a little bit more about Sync. We talked about how Sink is probably the least, at least specifically defined, member of Generation X. Here's his big arc, but he's a vampire the whole time. It seems, I don't know, it seems almost a missed opportunity. Like, we get to know his family better than we get to know him.
1: At the same time, we get to see the really fundamental parts of his personality, the things that can't help but push through, even in the face of really strong influence so how much he loves how much he's grounded at how much he poured a lot of his self and his ambition into his school for instance how much he cares about his family the the fact that despite emplate's influence he can't bring himself to hurt any of his family and ultimately does his best not to hurt his friends either
0: no that's a good point i mean everett i think if At this point in the story, if we can distill his personality down to one major trait, it's that he gives a shit about his family, biological and chosen, and that really gives him a great deal of power, a great deal of strength. Mm -hmm. So, in the present day, X-Men just relaunched a couple of weeks ago as we record this, and one of the seven members of the team is, I think, surprising a lot of people, myself included— Sync, he is a core member of the X-Team, after getting a really interesting focal issue with Wolverine, uh, Laura, the best Wolverine, recently. And I'm excited about this, because he's been around for so long, and there's been so little focus, and now he's on the freaking flagship team, so, Jerry Duggan, please let us know what makes Sync tick, and also please spell his codename consistently.
1: So here's a question, do you think hope was a factor in making that work? Because I feel like having her running around with the X-Men for as long as she did normalized the idea of a power duplicator as part of a a power lineup.
0: Oh, Hope Summers, yeah, like from Kieran Gillen's run of Uncanny X-Men. Mm -hmm. Uh, very possibly, and it is a cool power to have on especially such a powerful team, to be able to have sort of a backup version of each of the other characters, but who can maybe do their powers a little bit differently, and that sort of syncs whole deal, like we were just talking about. He doesn't replicate powers, he just does his own rainbow facsimile of them. It's a rainbow connection, if you will. (laughs) That brings us to Generation X number 17, The Teeth of Our Skin, written by Scott Lobdell. And Stan Lee, penciled by Chris Boccello, inked by Mark Buckingham, colored by Steve Buccalato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And oh man, before we get to the story here, there's a lot to talk about.
1: First and foremost, I know it's not the first thing that came up in the credits, but I am so, so happy not only to have Boccello back, but to have Boccello back on a skin-centric issue.
0: Yeah, Skin is certainly the strangest looking of the core cast. I guess Mondo's kind of strange. It occurs to me, Mondo's not in this story, he's not mentioned, we even forgot him in the cast list at the beginning.
1: We're monsters.
0: Oh god, sorry Mondo. Also, I'm sorry you're not in any of these issues.
1: In our vague and accidental defense, he's not actually Mondo at this point, he's a plant-based clone of Mondo created by Black Tom Cassidy to infiltrate the school.
0: Well, that was a sentence you just said. Sure it was. Anyway, as we were saying before we realized our Mondo omission, Skin is still probably the most outlandish looking of the characters. He has distorted, exaggerated features because he's got too much skin. He's a little monstrous looking. He looks sort of goblin-like. And different artists have drawn him differently, but Chris cello, like, sort of like how Warlock's design is owned by Bilsenkevich, I would say Skin's design is owned by Chris Bashello. Absolutely. So he's focal to this issue. The format of this issue is weird. And fun, but weird. It reminds me a little of Generation X number four, I believe. That was the Christmas issue, where every page had sort of a wrapping paper, Christmassy background, and there were all these little cartoon elves kind of commenting on what was going on. Similarly here, we have a red-and-white striped carnival tent background behind all the panels, and we have another character breaking the fourth wall, and that's, uh, that's Stan Lee.
1: It's Stan Lee as a carnival barker, which I do think is kind of the ultimate form of Stan Lee. Yeah, Stan Lee basically
0: was a carnival barker, maybe mixed with a used car salesman. But, uh, yeah, he's the one in his Carnival Barker outfit, in his almost caricature design done by Chris Piccello, who takes us from scene to scene, from the A-plot to the B-plot, and back again, and we saw that Stan Lee was credited as a co-writer— the dialogue still seems very lobdal for the most part, but everything that the Stan Lee character says sounds like something Stan Lee would say. I wonder if he just wrote his own dialogue for this issue. You know, that adjective-filled, alliteration-filled uh, set of excess.
1: That, that seems like the most logical contribution, yeah.
0: Did it remind you of the Minus One issues that Marvel did the following year?
1: Maybe a little bit, yeah.
0: Yeah, so listeners, if you're not familiar, in 1997, uh, Marvel had a minus one issue for, I'm not sure if it was for all of their books, but at least for quite a few of them. And in each one, some version of Stan Lee was the narrator. I don't think that really worked for a lot of them. Like, he was very silly, even in more serious stories. But here, it kind of does. Here, we've got that same off-kilter feel that we've gotten used to with Chris Picello, where even when stuff is really dark, it's just also strange.
1: It also, I think, provides some necessary space filler, because this is, I mean, it's a good story, but it's a very short story. It's one that doesn't really have an issue's worth of content, and I appreciate that instead of padding it by just extending it, they they just, you know, added some different material around the edges. And the thing is, what that
0: material is, is almost immaterial, Because I would watch Chris Boccello, especially the Chris Boccello of 1996, draw basically anything. It's just so delightfully engaging and textured.
1: Yeah, agreed, absolutely.
0: So let's backtrack a little to the B-plot of the last arc. Like we mentioned, we're dividing things up a little bit to make it more coherent. Chamber and Skin stayed back at the school because they looked too weird, and I guess the image-inducers were the dry cleaner or whatever. Chamber's not really at his best— You may recall that in a recent issue of something, I don't remember what, Chamber was kidnapped from the school grounds by Gateway, one of the teleporters who hangs out with the X-Men in general, and Generation X in particular, and Chamber was taken to the mysterious Onslaught, who we still know almost nothing about, before being almost immediately returned with no memory of what happened.
1: We're not the only ones who know almost nothing about Onslaught, because, yeah, as you said, Chamber has little to no memory of what happened, and he specifically can't remember what onslaught looked like he can't remember onslaught he knows he's seen him and he knows his memory was wiped and it's really messing with him
0: and so chamber's take was well okay if onslaught wiped my memory then that memory must have been important the identity of onslaught must have been important and it must be someone i know and could recognize if
1: i remembered them
0: right And, you know, this certainly does track with the fact that Onslaught is really Charles Xavier. Of course, Onslaught doesn't look anything like Xavier, so visually this doesn't make any sense. But, you know, I guess if we're going with our usual goal of making the Onslaught storyline more coherent, then we could say, well, Chamber's psychic, so just being in the proximity of Onslaught might be enough for Chamber to... deuce Onslaught's identity, and since Gateway was trying his best to resist being Onslaught's minion, he specifically wanted to bring someone psychic there to witness the whole thing. I'm not sure if all of that was intended by the writers, but, um, let's give them the benefit of the doubt.
1: I don't think very much was intended.
0: <laughs> you may be right, but, again, we, Jane Miles Explained the X-Men, are gonna make Onslaught as good of a story as it can possibly be, so... My take is it was all intended, it was all planned from the start, from 1963's X-Men No. 1 by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Everything was leading up to Onslaught.
1: I can't accept that, I'm sorry.
0: Damn it. I mean, there was that part where Professor X said he had a crush on Gene in the early issues, and then that comes up again in Onslaught for some stupid reason.
1: If only it could have been let to die a quiet, undignified death.
0: For real?
1: There's so much to dislike Onslaught for.
0: It's true. It's true. That's why it's that much more important to really focus on those few shining beacons of glorious hope that we can appreciate and enjoy.
1: I don't know, man. I don't know.
0: Anyway, there are no phones active at the Xavier School right now. Skin can't get through with a phone call. Turns out that'll be because Onslaught cut communications, but honestly, I think that does make the Onslaught story make less sense. Because if Onslaught is really Professor X, he would know that for the most part there's no reason to cut phones at the Xavier School. Nobody fucking calls anybody. Nobody communicates.
1: They do during this era, though. They, they all video conference.
0: I guess that's true. Anyway, Skin and Chamber drive away when they are confronted by Carl. It's Carl Denty, the
1: X-Kushioner. Alright, we have not seen this guy in a very, very long time. What is his deal?
0: Let's Carl Splain. Carl, the ex-cutioner. So Carl Denti used to work for the FBI. Specifically, he used to work with a dude named Fred Duncan who was a Silver Age FBI contact of the X-Men. He was a friend of Professor X's. Apparently, Fred Duncan died off camera at one point, and so Carl Denty, since he was pretty sure a mutant was responsible, decided to steal a bunch of random super crap from the FBI's lockup and become the X-Cutioner to go and execute mutants for their crimes. To avenge his friend, Fred Duncan.
1: For complicated reasons, I really want Nightman to punch him.
0: No, that's fair. Nightman can detect the frequency of evil, and, um...
1: And he also uses a whole bunch of improbable borrowed equipment. Okay, yeah. And he plays a mean sax. I wonder if
0: Carl Denty plays a mean sax. You know, maybe if he did, he could transition from supervillain to superhero. Maybe the saxophone is the missing component.
1: I think that is the critical difference between them.
0: Mm, yes. There, but for the grace of saxophone...
1: Yeah, so his thing now is he goes after and kills mutants who he thinks are responsible for killing humans, or, he says now, or other mutants.
0: Right, like, any mutant who kills will be xq cuted. He does not believe in due process. No, no, he's, he really doesn't. Um, his friends, uh, judge and jury, are, are just right out.
1: He's a little bit like the Punisher, but, like, somehow kind of really pitiful.
0: I don't know what it is. I think part of it is that he tends to get his ass kicked very thoroughly. Like, sometimes he does damage. He really, really injured Colossus one time. But he's also just so goofy-looking. Like, it's not just that he's wearing, you know, body armor and has some big laser rifle. His outfit is ridiculous. It's clearly just a mishmash, a hodgepodge of random supervillain and alien stuff that doesn't go together at all. Like, he sort of looks like a knight, a medieval knight, but with just a bunch of random stuff attached and a bunch of uncoordinated colors. Oh, you know what he reminds me of, Jay? He reminds me of a low-level World of Warcraft character.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see it. Nothing goes
0: together. The color scheme is awful. But yes, that's Carl. We know he's supposed to be intimidating. He's not. That being said, he does scare Skin and Chamber enough that Skin blows up the car they're driving in to get some distance from him.
1: Skin blows up the car? How does he manage that? Uh, he's he's got a lighter. I'm pretty sure cars are harder to blow up than that, but don't quote me cuz I'm not entirely certain.
0: You ain't no carologist.
1: That is entirely true.
0: Anyway, the car blows up, uh, they all get blown in different directions, and as Skin picks himself up looking for his friend that he just half blew up, we get a little bit of narration that really gets inside Angelo's head. This whole issue does.
1: This is is specifically about how simple his life used to be in the L.A. barrio.
0: Except for the blood and sirens and stabbings and shootings and drive-bys and dealing. There was a certain order to it all. A balance. A predictability. God was first. Family was second. Your colors were third. Simple, right? But that was before I knew I was a mutant.
1: This situation for him is pretty simple, though. He's going to make sure that Chamber gets to safety. Specifically, he's going to dump Chamber in a lake because Chamber doesn't need to breathe and he'll be safest just underwater because the executioner won't see him, which is brilliant.
0: I love this, because Chamber's injured, I mean, he's just gonna slow Skin down, obviously, and Skin doesn't do the, no, no, I'll carry you with me, he just says, oh, um, I'm just gonna stash you at the bottom of a muddy swimming pool, see you later, bro, I'll take care of this thing, I'll be back.
1: I mean, that is unquestionably the correct choice under the circumstances. It's also kind
0: of hilarious, because he just does it so abruptly, like, Chamber doesn't even get a chance to respond.
1: It's also the second arc in a row in which Chamber ends up buried in mud. That's
0: true! Oh, this kid's going to develop such a weird fetish. Okay, all of that very much aside, let's praise Chris Bocello some more. Because as much as we were just talking about how goofy Carl the Executioner tends to look, Bocello
1: makes him look, okay, also goofy, but freaking awesome. I don't know if I'd go so far as awesome, but he does look legitimately threatening. Yeah, he's
0: enormously muscled, his weird dumb mask looks like this alien skull face, his ribbon cape puts Mr. Sinister's to shame, he's just this giant, spiky, bladed, textured, intimidating, just, chunk of
1: murderer. Almost, but not quite enough to make us forget that his name is Carl.
0: So, we apologize to listeners named Shirley in our XSE episode. We will now apologize to listeners named Carl.
1: No, I'm not apologizing for anything. Listeners named Carl, your name does not sync, as it were, well with ridiculous supervillainy. You do not have a supervillain name, and that is okay.
0: Not everyone needs to be a supervillain.
1: No, especially not this one.
0: Oh, not this one. Well, this one is here because he's trying to execute Skin to execute Angelo for murdering Angelo Espinoza and claiming his identity? Uh, Skin immediately denies that he's done this. But here's the thing. Because this is a comic book and half the fights in comic books are based on misunderstandings, Skin doesn't actually tell Carl what really did happen, even when Carl specifically says he would like an explanation.
1: Thing is, though, Carl has a little DNA reader that confirms that Skin's DNA is identical to Angelo Espinosa's, and he doesn't think that means anything. I mean,
0: maybe he feels like maybe Skin has Angelo's blood on his hands still from, like, months or years ago.
1: What, the, that his DNA reader is reading the metaphor?
0: Maybe it's a metaphorical DNA reader.
1: Why would he have one of those?
0: I don't know, but, um, you know, mRNA vaccines, most people don't realize the M stands for metaphorical.
1: That is not true at all, and this is not a good time to be peddling metaphorical vaccine misinformation.
0: Okay, that is a valid point. I will retract my, uh, vaccine hoax. Well, Skin doesn't talk much to Carl, but he does use his stretchy skin to pull a building down on top of the Executioner. And this is such a weird thing to say, but... I love the way Chris Pacello draws piles of rubble.
1: No, I get that. It's really good. Yeah,
0: like, it's just a bunch of bricks and pipes and stuff, but it's so visually engaging. Like, usually that's the sort of thing your eyes just glaze over. Like, whatever, it's a pile of bricks. I don't care. But each of these bricks has a personality. Each of these bricks has a story. And
1: I want to hear that story. Well, I wouldn't take it quite that far. I, I do get what you mean. And this is, you can see sort of the beginnings of what I think of as Bacello's slightly shaken Etch-a-Sketch phase here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I
0: remember he drew the Age of Apocalypse miniseries a little bit after this. And a lot of those action scenes, you're like, well, something's falling over on someone, or someone's falling over on something. I'm not entirely sure.
1: Well, or the um, Assault on Weapon Plus storyline that he did in the early aughts. Which is one of my favorite arcs of New X-Men, and which is often nearly visually incoherent in ways that still make really good storytelling.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's good at evoking, even if he's not able to literally convey what's going on, which is a rare quality in an artist.
1: Yes, nailed it. That is exactly what it is. He's evocative. Oh, thanks. So this brings the fight to something that finally creates some context for the whole carnival setting and that is an abandoned amusement park complete with a house of mirrors and
0: a wax museum. Yes. I really appreciate that Skin uh, disguises himself as one of the wax dummies. And there's this brief cat and mouse mystery of, oh, which of these Hollywood monsters is really Angelo Espinoza in disguise? I think it's one of those things where Scott Lobdell just figured, you know what? Chris Picello would draw fun Hollywood monsters. What's a way that I can make that part of this scene?
1: I mean, I am in general just sort of in favor of staging as many stories as possible in abandoned amusement parks. I I feel like I'm on record with this.
0: That or broken down world's fairs, yeah.
1: Both. Ideally, you can get some overlap.
0: Mm. Well, this fight doesn't move to a world's fair, it does move to a house of mirrors, where the executioner sees a bunch of versions of skin in all the different mirrors around him, surrounding him, and they sort of talk. Skin keeps building more and more doubt in the executioner, Is Carl sure he has this story right? And if he's wrong about this one, if Skin didn't kill Angelo, could he be wrong about the stories of the other mutants that he executed?
1: No, that isn't true. I only did what I had to do. Somebody has to protect the innocent. I I didn't toss away 20 years of service to this country just to become a murderer. I stand for something.
0: This is what we needed for the executioner. He's been such a one-note, silly villain, and I think that silliness was in part because there was never anything compelling about him, and this actually is.
1: You know what, though? Hmm? still can't take him seriously.
0: Well, okay, fair. But I like this. I like the idea of someone who's been so traumatized by the loss of a friend that he takes this quest for vengeance way too far, convincing himself over and over that it's justice, and having that be fragile having the good man inside the executioner's dumb armor start to come through and freak out about whether he might have done something wrong?
1: I'm trying to think of what he would need to do for me to have more interest in him as a character. I think the first thing he needs is, is to add an E to his name.
0: Instead of just the X- ex-cutioner? Yeah. Eh, there is that.
1: So there was a second
0: executioner way, way later who was just a person in some sort of normal-looking combat armor. Not really very interesting. I think you kinda need to keep this look at least, even if you also add an E.
1: Well, and then there's Executioner's Song and so on and so forth. But there's no reason for him to have an X codename. And I think making him a more pared down character keeping the ridiculous costume, that's fine. I think I think it's it's a good touch or can be. But giving him more making him more pared down, making him, you know, not have have a silly code name, not have this this complicated kind of pseudo-superhero thing going on... would work a lot better.
0: Well, that's fair. That being said, congrats to this issue for still making us care more than we did in the past. Uh, Skin does at this point handily take out Carl with Carl's own energy lance... and retrieves Chamber from the swimming pool, and, and they're fine.
1: And they all live happily ever. Onslaught.
0: Oh yeah, that's coming. But before that happens... You've got questions. Manic Pixie Man asks on Tumblr, has there been an incontinuity explanation as to why Cyclops still needs his Ruby Quartz lenses? After dying and coming back, what, three times now, and especially with the current Krakoan resurrection protocols, one would think that the brain injury that caused him to lose control would have been healed.
1: So there has not been an explanation. However, I'm actually okay with that, and I think that the most logical explanation is kind of the simplest one, which is that it's entirely possible that his his visor is a useful adaptive tool even when he's technically got control of his powers. I mean, a, a loose analogy would be that if I don't have my glasses on, I can technically read books if I hold them very close to my face and squint, but you probably wouldn't argue that that means that I, I don't need glasses or that it doesn't make sense for me to wear my glasses when I read.
0: This is interesting. I know it's been mentioned at least once during the current era that— the cloned bodies that mutants are resurrected into do occasionally need to be modified. I forget if it was Laura or Logan who needed to have adamantium re-added. So clearly there's some deliberation there. It almost seems like mutants are just being restored to the status quo versions of themselves, at least how they identify. And given that Scott's been wearing those lenses for so much of his life, I can see that being the case with him. I can see him feeling naked without them.
1: But regardless, I like the idea of powers that aren't all or nothing, that can be inconvenient and debilitating to control.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think you run the risk with the Krakoan paradigm of making everything perfect, and that's not the world. That's not interesting.
1: Or you run the risk with the Krakoan paradigm of implying a definition of perfection that doesn't allow for disability.
0: Mm, Very, very good point.
1: So an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, A recent issue, Sword Number 5, contains a discussion of how culturally important mutant names are. The same issue also has several characters call Magneto Eric. How standardized is the use of mutant names among mutants?
0: Totally varies. Uh, different characters seem to care more or less. It's interesting that the listener brought up Magneto, because historically Magneto has been one of the biggest proponents of choosing a mutant name— Although I think a lot of that was actually popularized in the X-Men movies. I actually just saw X2 again a couple of nights ago, and uh, Magneto's the one that demands that Pyro name himself something, which of course turns out to be Pyro, which in retrospect, kind of a on-the-nose name, you know?
1: I mean, no more so than, say, Iceman.
0: Yeah, yeah, good point, good point.
1: Krakoa does
0: seem to have more of an interest in the topic uh, than we've seen portrayed before, and that makes sense. I mean, Krakoa is trying to create its own culture, and its own culture that is specifically distinct from the human culture that most of its inhabitants were were raised in. Of course, it's still in its infancy, so you're going to have a lot of exceptions, and I guess my take is that birth names, human names, if you will— those are probably more common with folks who have had a more positive history with spaces that are not mutant only, like with human spaces or human-mutant mixed spaces, and also probably more common among mutants who can easily pass as human. I was trying to think if there are any Morlocks who have standard names other than their sort of mutant code names. The only one I could think of was actually Sally Blevins, Skids, arguably the most human-looking of all the Morlocks.
1: It's a really, really good point. So
0: yeah, I'll be curious to see where that goes, whether that becomes more of a thing as Krakoa's culture continues to develop, or whether the new Inferno just blows the whole thing up and it's not relevant anymore.
1: So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts, and today the mic goes to Carl the Executioner.
0: Okay, Carl, get a hold of yourself. You know you're doing the right thing. I mean... You used to work for the FBI. You're thorough, you're careful, you don't jump to conclusions. So, you know for sure, Carl, that Detective Chump is absolutely the one behind the recent series of grisly murders at the local Evil Disco. Think about it. Detectives are agents of the law, but a detective who is a chump wouldn't be very good at their job. Hence, crimes. The worst possible crimes. As soon as I can get this very efficient and in no way excessive alien energy lance charged, Detective Chump will pay. And as for that wave of arson that's been plaguing the city, it has to be Joe. Think about it, Carl. How many people named Joe have been guilty of a crime? Hundreds! Thousands! It's just pure deductive logic that this Joe, therefore, is our little firebug. My computerized skull-mask-hood thing will find you, Joe, and you will die. Or at least someone with the same name. Close enough. And with that...
1: Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com.
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com.
1: Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn.
0: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com.
1: Next week, it's an all-fleshette power hour.
0: With the Archangel one-shot.